Art of the Cut is brought to you by Studio Network Solutions, helping video teams in over 80 countries transform the way they store, share, and organize content. Studio Network Solutions' industry-leading Evo shared storage servers come with a perfect suite of core features you'll love, like built-in media asset management and powerful integrations for Adobe, Resolve, Avid, and FCP10. They've even made it easier to work from home with their new remote editing tool, Nomad. Visit studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and sign up for a demo today. Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Eileen Meyer. In 2016, at South by Southwest, she won the Karen Schmier Film Editing Fellowship. Her editing credits go back to 2011. Her filmography includes the documentary Best of Enemies, Buckley vs. Vidal, the feature film Only Child, and episodes of the TV series The Devil Next Door. Today we discuss her work on the documentary Crip Camp, which premiered this year at Sundance. I interviewed her via Skype, and as we talked, I could see a wall of colored post-it notes behind her. So I had to ask if she was already working from home on a new project. Are you working on something new? I am, yeah. This is for uh, my new project, which is a feature documentary about Anthony Bourdain. Oh, wow. Um, I'm working with Morgan Neville at Tremolo for that film. Yeah, we're about a third of the way into that one. Tell me a little bit about the project we're talking about. And for those that haven't seen it, just give us a little bit of idea of the, the film itself. Uh, Crip Camp is about a sort of hippie radical summer camp for uh, kids with disabilities that um, uh, we start the film in the early 70s and we meet the kids from the camp and then we follow them for the next two decades beyond the camp through the disability rights movement all the way through the ADA uh, being signed and then to present day. Um, at the very end of the film. Yeah, I saw the film at Sundance and the audience just ate it up. First of all, it's just riotously funny and a ton of personality. But then the other amazing thing is that basically that camp kind of birthed the entire Americans with Disabilities Act, which is incredible. Both of those things are amazing, enough of a reason to do a documentary. Tell me a little bit about the schedule. How long were you on the film and... Um, so, so the film, I think, went through a few different lives um, through the editing process, which, you know, a lot of films take a really long time to edit, takes a really long time to find the right tone, to find the right story, and to find all the pieces of the archival that really came together to make the film work. So I came onto the film the last seven months of the edit. But they had a sort of rough assembly when I came onto the film, which they had been working on for about a year before I came onto it. Initially, they were working with editor Andy Gersh. They went to the Sundance Edit Lab with the film. They went down a lot of different paths for like trying to find the right tone for the film. I think at a certain point, after like a year of working on the edit, they were really feeling like they needed to bring in some fresh eyes and fresh perspectives. I came onto the film at the same time as Mary Lampson, who was our co-editor. So she and I worked 
together collaboratively throughout the rest of the edit. When we came onto the film, they had gotten a bunch of notes and thoughts from veteran editors who were consultants. So they had a lot of ideas just swirling around. So sort of Mary and I worked together with Jim and Nicole, the directors, to focus all those ideas. The film has so many amazing elements, and you can just see that from watching any of the raw material. The black and white footage from the camp is just incredible on its own, and you can just sit and watch it for hours and not get bored. At the same time, they did all these wonderful interviews, and they have all these great characters, and there's like the incredible archival from the 504 sit-in later on. And so you could see all of these pieces and you're like, oh my God, this is just like every documentary's like filmmaker's dream to have all of these amazing elements. But it was something about like the way it was all fitting together. It wasn't quite like doing it justice. When we came onto the project, it was like, okay, how do we take this film to the next level and like make it great so that the film itself really lives up to the material? Do you think that that was really the issue, was more tonal? Because it, it is tricky. Like, there's so much humor in it, right? You're like, oh, we could just totally eliminate the humor and go for this straight political story. Um, yeah, so talk to me about choosing that tone and finding that tone. It's about tone, and it's also about point of view, and it's about how you're telling the story. And I think a lot of the stuff that they were starting to do initially with the film was that it was Jim Lebrecht's story. He was the co-director and he's also one of the main characters in the film. And he's sort of like the person that introduces you to this world. And then you enter the story kind of through his eyes. And so it was always that idea existed, but initially he had this voice of God narration over the whole thing. And he was not an on-camera interview at first. So it was like he, he was doing it as a straight personal film. And occasionally you would hear like the different stories from different characters, but it was always coming back to him and his personal story. I think one of the biggest changes right before I came onto the project was that they finally ended up as an experiment doing a sit-down interview with Jim and making him the same type of character as everyone else in the film. So that was one of the, like a big shift in tone and point of view. And then throughout the rest of the editing process, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out, okay, whose story is this? And at what point, and how do we shift perspectives? And how do we make it a collective story? It's not just Jim's story. It's not just the movement's story. It's not just Judy's story. It's everyone's story is like adding to the collective experience of watching the film. Um, and so it took us a, lo a long time to really make that work and to get Jim's story and voice to match Judy's story and voice and for it to not feel like two separate films in camp and after camp. So was that a lot of scene work or was it more you had these scenes and the scenes were what they were and it was how you tied them together? What made it feel cohesive? So I think it was a lot of really subtle things. It was scene work. Two of the toughest sections of the film for me was the transition out of camp into the rest of the world, mm -hmm. like the beginning of act two. You've just spent 40 minutes in this incredible experience of the summer camp in this totally immersive, almost verite 
type of material. And as soon as you leave camp, we don't have that material for the rest of the movement for the, the next two decades. And so we had to piece together from just so many different little fragments of archival footage to try to create the feeling of being immersed in the time and place. And that took a while because it had to be cut at sort of a different pace because of just the nature of the material. We didn't have the long shots. It felt like a totally different style of editing. So then we had to open it up the whole second half of the film. We had to go back and like find any moment where we could like let it breathe. Similarly, cutting down certain aspects of the camp footage so it didn't feel too slow to create that balance. Right. And, and it's kind of interesting because, of course, numbers don't matter, right? The, the fact that the first act is 40 minutes is immaterial. But that seems like a long first act for a movie that's as long as this is. But you've got this incredible material, right? That's where the richness of the, the material and all of your, like, for those that haven't seen the film, a group of people that had a reel-to-reel black-and-white video camera went to this camp and shot and actually let the, the campers shoot their own material. So there's a ton of wacky and emotional and wonderful material, but that's just for the first 40 minutes. But you could have made a whole movie out of just, you could have done two hours, I'm sure, with, with that material. So you, you, get, you come out of that, you let that go a little, you know, maybe not long in a, a true sense, but most people think first act's 30 now you're into this other transition and I never felt like it was a different feeling, like the pace changed. So now you're coming out of this very funny material and the tone changes pretty radically, although the characters still keep their personalities and everything, but now you're dealing with a very different thing. Talk to me about that transition from act one into act two. Did the tone change? There were a lot of conversations we had and notes that we got through our test screenings. People wanted a context for how oppressive that time period was before you would even enter camp at the beginning of the film, to understand the freedom of the camp even more by understanding what the kids were escaping from. But what we found was that it was actually more powerful to do it the opposite and to let you experience the camp and the joy and the fun of the camp first And then when you open the doors and all the kids go back home and the counselors go home and then you're introduced to like what they're going back to, then the stark contrast of like the joy and freedom of the camp to what their real lives are like and what culture is like is just totally shocking at that point. We found that doing it after camp was like more effective to where you would feel that more. Um, and weren't being told it, you were actually feeling it along with the campers. Like you didn't, you don't want to leave camp. Right. You have now joined the group of friends at the camp as the audience, and they're your friends. And then they go back to these horrible, oppressive home lives where they can't get around. They're stuck in their two-story apartment building, and they can't cross the street, and they're isolated. You know, as some of the characters, but. I think if you were just told that at the beginning of the film, you don't experience it emotionally necessarily. You're just like, oh, okay, that's a fact of that time. Right, but now there's somebody that you care about that is not being treated properly. 
Yeah, I love that. And then there's a very, uh, and I'm trying to remember back to January when I watched this one time only. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about Willowbrook and deciding to put that in and also deciding how long are we going to stay in this really uncomfortable place, I think, for the audience. For me personally, I'm like, oh. That was just an incredibly shocking um, special when it came out, revealing like what was actually happening in these institutions where kids with mental and physical disabilities were being sent and grossly mistreated and starved and tortured and all these terrible things. For a a large part of the edit, that section of the film was too long, but You know, I think we found an equilibrium at a certain point, but the thing that we needed to get across was that the same kids that you were seeing at Camp Ed having these very full, active, and joyous life were the same kids that were being sent to these institutions that you're now seeing in this footage. And these misconceptions that you bring to it of not thinking of those kids as people Um, I think is really powerful and uncomfortable. I mean, a lot of the editing in the film is meant to make the audience feel uncomfortable at certain points and examine our own biases and misconceptions. So there's a lot of moments in the film that are supposed to, you know, elicit those reactions. And I think that's one of them. Yeah. When, when Judy says, when I first went there, I couldn't believe it. And I realized that any one of us could have ended up here that's when you're just like, oh my God. Right, so you've set up these people that you care about, you show how bad things could be, and that kind of launches this political movement. Movement Is that kind of the feel or the... Yeah, you've seen both extremes. And you're like, here's what life, here's like the worst of how it is, what life is like for people with disabilities, and here's how it could be. And then like, how do we get there as a society? I think the skeleton of that structure were there when I came onto it. Um, I think actually making those moments work emotionally was like a big part of our uh, last six months of the edit. Some of the things that were difficult about the tone uh, in the assembly was that some scenes were just really silly and goofy and some scenes were just really heavy and dark. And I think one thing we realized is the strength of this film is the complicated emotions and that every scene had to have all of those things. It couldn't just be one or the other. You were laughing at the same time that you're crying and being outraged. You had to be experiencing all of those things all the time. And so I think that was like a big mountain we had to climb was to trust our audience to be able to have those complicated feelings along with the characters um, and not handhold and trust that the audience will pick up on the subtlety of things. And so we had to strip out a lot of the voiceover and exposition and let the footage be the film. You're kind of talking about it's this roller coaster ride and instead of having these really high highs and these really low lows, you're inside of each scene going up and down much more often and not quite as high and quite as low. What is that transition between the camp and Willowbrook or Willow and Willowbrook and Willowbrook? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What happens to to get you? Because that's a big jump. uh, It is. Emotionally. It is. Yeah. There's a few scenes in between where you see some of the campers go home 
to their different lives uh, and their different home experiences. You see Lionel, one of the camp counselors, go back to Alabama and his experience of sort of the race relations at the time. And he relates that to the discrimination against people with disabilities and how he was able to understand that being at the camp and then having to go back to the deep South in the early 70s. So it starts to shift into a more political space as soon as you sort of experience that with Lionel. Um, And then Judy kind of picks up the ball and we start to talk about Judy's political activism after camp. And she was really just doing so much amazing work from the very beginning. She had sued New York State to be able to be a teacher even before camp. Then after camp, she started this organization called uh, Disability in Action, and they started doing all these crazy protests in New York. So you start to see the beginnings of the political movement. And then when Disabled in Action, which is Judy's organization, they start to work on deinstitutionalization, which is the Willowbrooks of the country, they start to try to dismantle that system. They visit Willowbrook for the first time and Judy is hit with this horrible experience. And I think then that fuels the next level of the movement that they then all go on to create in Berkeley. Since somebody else started on this, the organizational structure inside of the NLE, are we in Premier? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cutting in Premier. How were things organized for you that you could find things? Was it all by date? Was it by subject matter? How were you, how was it organized that you could edit? So the interesting thing coming onto this film, I feel like some editors are organizers and some editors are not. I think some people like to come in and they just start cutting scenes and they're not doing this like pre-organization. I I guess they didn't really have an assistant editor at the beginning, so there wasn't someone organizing the footage initially. Um, So it was just going straight to the editor. And I think like he was more of an editor who was just cutting scenes. And so when I came onto the project, there was an assembly and there were a bunch of rough scenes, but there wasn't like organizational bins or themes or anything like that. I am more of like an organizing person. So I worked really closely with Lauren Schwartzman, who was our assistant editor and associate producer. She's an incredible, incredible, talented person. And she was on the project from pretty early on and she knew where everything was. So it was all in her mind. Right before I would start to work on a section of the film, I would say, okay, I'm a you know, in a couple of days, I'm going to start working on this part of the film. Can you build me a string out of everything that could possibly be related to that thing? You know, all the interviews, the archive, the previous scenes that have been cut. And so it was like, that was sort of my bin of things to look at for a particular section. We would build those kind of like theme bins and then break that down into, okay, now this is my scene string out, and these are my selects from that bigger pool. But I could always go back to that bigger pool as like a starting point if I was missing something. So I like to have that sort of all-inclusive bin or string out to go back to in case I'm missing something. You would do a single string out 
for a topic, not in like give me a topic and the interviews as one string out and a topic and the B-roll is another and a topic in the archival. It was all in one timeline. How big were some of those timelines? There were some that were, you know, a couple hours long. In terms of like the, the camp footage, the black and white footage, there was five and a half hours of that footage altogether. So in a way it's a lot and in a way it's not a lot. About 40 minutes of the film. So that tells you how amazing that footage was. Like we could really work with all of it if we wanted to. So for that footage, I really sat down and watched all of it and made my own selects based on what I was seeing and not what was already edited. So it was just responding to my initial watch of that material and finding the moments that jumped out at me. And Mary Lamson, who also worked a lot on that part of the film, did the same thing and she made her own selects. We were able to find a lot of subtlety in that footage by going back through it at a later stage in the edit and pulling out just really like micro moments that added to the the bigger story. It's an interesting point to me because your understanding of the material that you're watching, the source material, changes as you do the edit. It does. So the person that cut that originally, the selects they make are very different than the selects you make knowing the context. And you're, and you're able to find those little, oh my gosh, that would work perfectly, those little subtleties, like you said. Totally. I love that. I think it's really important coming into an edit. I've been on both sides of the edit where I start an edit and someone else takes it over and vice versa. And so I think in both respects, there are different advantages and disadvantages. But coming into it later, you're coming from a very privileged perspective where Already, a lot of things have been tried, a lot of mistakes have been made. You can see everything fresh, and you're able to see things that someone who's been working on it for a year wouldn't necessarily see anymore, mm-hmm. or even the directors. Like, everyone just gets too close to the material. And so, I think it's important on any project, every project that I've worked on, to at some point towards the end get a lot of fresh eyes. And whether that's like consulting editors or friends or test screenings or whatever it is, having like a lot of fresh eye perspective is so important, no matter how you do it. And I think the other thing on this film is the collaborative aspect of our editing process. We were all working remotely. I was in New York for part of the time, in Los Angeles for part of the time, Mary Lamson and Shane Felt, who is her apprentice editor, were in Maine. Nicole and Jim were in the Bay Area. We were all working remotely on like different parts of the film and talking every once in a while and sending scenes around. But then once a month or so, we would all meet in Berkeley and spend a week or two together. And most of the time in that week, we would spend more time just talking than we would even cutting. Because I don't think the film could have ever gotten there if we didn't have those very, very long and emotional and deep conversations about what we were doing. And how were you collaborating technically? Was Did everybody have the source material in-house, you know, locally, and then you were sharing projects up to Dropbox or something? Yes, exactly. Uh, we had three sets of mirror drives, uh, one in Berkeley, one with me, and one with Mary. And we would share projects to Dropbox. 
it was mostly that I think I had the master project. Then we would send around smaller mini projects that would like only have a certain scene or a certain string out or whatever anyone was working on. We would send those around in, in smaller projects and then incorporate that into the master. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Eileen Meyer. Whether you're working from home or in your facility, your media has to be secure, organized, and accessible by your whole team. Studio Network Solutions Evo shared storage servers now include Nomad, an easy-to-use utility to help media production teams work from home, on the road, or anywhere in the world. Evo shared storage servers provide ultra-fast performance for real-time 4K and even 8K editing. Each Evo comes with built-in media asset management software, so you can easily search, tag, and preview all your storage. Evo also features backup and sync tools, so you always know your media and projects are protected, plus powerful integrations to improve your workflows in Adobe Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid Media Composer, and Final Cut Pro 10. Visit studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and discover a better way to store, share, and organize your media. As a special offer for my listeners, you can get 10% off a new Evo system by going to studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and signing up for an online demo today. And now back to my interview with Eileen Meyer. So there's this collaboration going on amongst the whole group, including producers. What kind of collaboration is happening between you and the other editor? It was all very collaborative. We were always working on a different part of the film. Um, I think at a certain point, I took over the second half of the film, the end of camp through the end. And at a certain point, Mary focused on the summer camp, the first half of the film. And so initially we were sharing a bunch of different parts of the film, but after a while we sort of split it that way when we got to the more fine cut. So we would just send things back and forth really just to get notes. And then like Mary would send me something and she'd be like, oh, this is just like a idea. What do you think? And then I would say, oh yeah, like that gave me this other idea and then I would do it and I'd send it back to her and then she'd be like, great. And then she'd send it, you know, we did a little bit of that um, sharing of material and scenes. And that's really the way that I like to work. I love working collaboratively with other editors because I feel like every time new eyes are on it, new ideas get thought of and edits just get better and better and better. And I'm not the type of editor that is like, this is my edit, this is my idea. I always want someone else to add something to it. And I think everyone on this project felt that way. So it was like a really magical kind of feeling the whole time we were working on it. We all knew that it was such a special film and such a special group of people that we were working with. And it felt emotional. So much love going on between the crew. Like it was a once in a lifetime editing experience. Uh, I went to one of the Q and A's with the with the team, and it was definitely a love fest. You know, you could tell that the people that were on stage truly loved each other, loved working on the project. Yeah, talk a little bit just about Premiere, and have you edited in other things? Uh, have you edited in Avid before? Talk to me about the difference and why Premiere you think was chosen for this, why you were happy to be in it, and and are you editing this Bourdain project in Premiere? 
Uh, unfortunately, I am editing the Bourdain Project in Avid. I am not a big fan of Avid. I learned to edit using Final Cut 7. And so the transition, when that died, the transition to Premiere was very nice transition for me. And I was able to translate all of the instinctual things that I had learned over many years directly into Premiere. Um, and I avoided every project in Avid that I possibly could for as long as I possibly could. I turned down many projects solely because they were editing in Avid and I just didn't want to go there. But then finally a Netflix project that I worked on a couple of years ago called The Devil Next Door, they were editing in Avid and I really loved the project and I was just like, okay. Time's up. I guess I got to learn it. And I still hate it. I really, no offense, avid people, but it is so counterintuitive to me. It takes 20 steps to do any one thing. It feels so clunky. Like you're just having to constantly think about like, okay, this goes there and that goes there. And where, and you know, it's like when I'm editing, I don't want to think about all that stuff. I just want to like do it. And so in Premiere, it takes one stroke to do everything and it just goes so much quicker for me. I love Premiere, I'm a big fan. And also just not having to transcode things, like having all the different um, archival material in all the different formats that we had and frame rates and everything. Didn't have to transcode it, just threw it on the timeline, everything worked, no problems. And just having that saves so much time. The only thing that Avid has over Premiere is the script sync aspect. But I have talked to the Adobe people and they are working on that. And so hopefully very soon that is going to be a feature and then hopefully Avid can go away. I am working on a doc right now in Avid. What's a saving grace for me is phrase find because I can literally type the words that I'm looking for and the clip is there with the endpoint already set. I'm like, oh. I can't imagine having to search for this. Even a transcript would be a pain in the butt. Uh, I cut a feature in Final Cut Pro, and so I and I've cut a feature in Premiere. So I know that they're just different things. You need to learn to use them the way they're used. But I I completely understand your frustration. The other aspect right now is a lot of my projects have been remote, but obviously right now everything has to be remote. So having to transfer an Avid project that was on an in-house server to remote systems with multiple editors has been a nightmare. And Avid is so finicky about where all the material lives and how it reads it and everything. It creates a lot of problems when you're working remotely. Do you have any examples of the subtle editing decisions that made a big difference in the tone of the film? Like if you remember the very first scene with Nancy Rosenblum, who has cerebral palsy and she's pretty difficult to understand. There's a scene where all of the campers are kind of learning to talk to her and with her. And they're all go kind of going around and talking to her. And Jim, in that scene, as a 15-year-old kid at the summer camp, having had himself very little experience with other disabled kids, starts to talk about her when she's in the room as opposed to to her. And it's this very subtle moment, but without him having to explain it in voiceover, like, this is what I learned from this moment. You just get to experience the moment 
as it is. And then it informs a scene, a couple scenes later, where they're all sitting around the table talking about their message to their parents, where the People's Video Theater hand Nancy Rosenblum a microphone. And even though barely anyone at the table can really understand what she's saying, they let her say everything she has to say. And I think that's the moment that the directors always knew was the essence of what happened at the camp on a life-changing and emotional level. And that if we did everything we could to build up to that moment, and that's sort of like the climax of the first act, that it would allow the audience to experience that in a revelatory way. Whereas initially, some of the people we would show that scene to initially were like very uncomfortable, cut it down, put subtitles, do something to make us feel more comfortable. And we were like, no, that's not the point. The point is that even if you are uncomfortable, you have to learn how to listen and to be present and to see everyone as a human being. But that was set up, like you said, so beautifully by that earlier moment. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and, and it's almost like I almost yeah. remember, I remember feeling this where I'm like, well, I just learned this lesson two minutes ago. So I better just sit here and try to figure out what this girl's saying. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you did well. You taught me well. You, uh, I, I learned my lesson as an audience member and was ready for that next scene. That's very subtle. And it's very, man, that is a setup that you don't usually think about in a documentary. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of those things running throughout the film, just really subtle things that took us a while to figure out how to do it right. And it took a lot of test screening and trial and error and patience and time. And thankfully, with Netflix and Higher Grounds and all of our executive producers and our fundraiser producer, Sarah Boulder, who's Jim's wife, we were able to get enough money to take the time that we needed to make the film great. And then to, they're also put a lot of time and money and energy into the impact of the film that's still going on. And so there's all of these discussions and you know events and everything surrounding the launch of the film that I think is just an incredible feat from everyone who put time and money into the film. For those that don't recognize Higher Ground, that's Obama's new uh, producing company. How much did they have to speak into the film? What was their role beyond, you know, promotional? So we worked really closely with our two executive producers, Howard Gertler and Priya Swaminathan. Um, And she's kind of the head of uh, Higher Ground and communicates directly with the Obamas. Howard and Priya would give us their own notes on uh, many of our edits. And then every once in a while, we would get notes from the Obamas through Priya. And they were always very hands-off, very minimal, but, and always questions. Mm -hmm. Like, what if this? Or what if that? And, you know, it was never, like, anything mandated. I mean, it was so great that they, like, trusted the filmmaking process and let us come to our own ideas about things. Uh, But many of their notes were very helpful as well. And so it was just like an amazing collaboration. It's exactly what you want from a studio. I want to explore a little bit the idea that you've talked about of patience, that you have this extended period of time, you're working on something that 
at whatever point isn't quite working or you know you're not quite happy with it, but you just know you're going to get there. Talk to me a little bit about having patience as an editor and understanding the process, understanding that you have a year or years to get something right. I, I always knew that because of the just incredible nature of the material itself and the fact that this was like such an important aspect of history that no one knows about, those two things, I never had a doubt in my mind that we wouldn't get there, but it's just not knowing how long it's going to take. My perspective is always like, okay, we have a schedule, but like F the schedule, <laughs> you know? And that was like, and Mary was like that as well, you know? And obviously, you know, from a producing standpoint, they're always trying to keep us on track. And so there's like a dance that you play. Okay. Now they're going to push us a little bit and make us cut everything down to the right runtime in a week. And like, that's an experiment. And then, okay, do we cut out too much? Or like there are little things like that that kind of will push us forward. But in general, we're at a certain point and we know one more month, two more months, this film is going to go from here to here. It's in their best interest to have the best film that they can possibly have at the end of the edit. Mm-hmm. I think for Netflix or for Higher Ground to like really realize that and give us the time to make it great was like in everyone's best interest. Like I said, like a lot of it is talking and thinking and it's not just about like, okay, how much can you edit in a day? It's like, how much are you really thinking about what it is you're making and really understanding that? And then being able to have the time to, to like in a non-stressful way, sit down and be creative. So just having that extra creative time was so, so valuable. That said, I had a lot of late nights on this film. You know, it was not like a leave at six kind of thing at all. I was happy to do it because I would get in these creative flows and I was allowed to have the time, you know, work till 11 or midnight or whatever. And then that felt good to me. Yeah, I'm the same way where sometimes you can't really figure out how you're going to get into an edit, but then once you do, you're like, I can't stop. It, the time does not matter. The clock does not matter once you're like into it. It's interesting that you mentioned the amount of talking that goes on because I just talked to the biggest little farm editor, Amy Overbeck, and she said we would spend a day just looking at the cards on the wall. I would not put my fingers on the keyboard. Uh, Talk to me about the value of doing that and what it means when you finally do sit down at the keyboard that you've had that time. As an example, we spent a lot of time talking in person, but also when we were working remotely, we would have Skype calls. Like after we would get to a certain point in the edit or we would send out like a cut, everyone would watch the cut and then we would come back together and all discuss the cut and go through it piece by piece, little by little. And I think one of our Skype calls towards the end of the edit, really close to picture lock, I think was seven and a half hours Skype call. Everyone was so exhausted by the end of that, but it was like we were just taking every single little moment. That's when you are micro editing. That was an intense part of the process. Having those very long conversations is so important just to like put my head 
in the right place. And so it's not even about getting the very specific notes here and there. Like I have those written down or whatever, but it's about really getting to the bottom of why someone is reacting a certain way to a certain thing. And it's not necessarily exactly what they're saying. It's about why they're saying it. It's sort of like therapy. If you do like your own personal therapy, you don't necessarily have like revelations all the time, but somehow you realize you feel better after you've been talking for an hour. And so something happened in your brain that you don't even know what happened, but something happened. Then when you go to sit down to edit, I'm editing from that headspace of feeling clearer and feeling like I'm able to access that subconscious so much easier. So one of the things you mentioned was, you know, knowing that a note didn't mean what it means or that it wasn't right you still know that it's addressing a pain point, but it's just not addressing it correctly. Right. Can you think of anything like that that happened that you were like, this was going on, we were getting these notes from someone, and here's how we addressed that note? One of those examples would be, I think, uh, with Jim's character in the film, where I think at certain points people weren't connecting with him as much as we would like people to do, but to allow him to be the guide through the the whole film. Judy's character was sort of like overshadowing him a bit. And so I think at first our reaction to that was, oh, we need to go like deeper into like personal aspects of Jim's story. So we tried that and then that had the opposite effect. And, and what we realized was that like the point of view of the collective story, the entire film is... A, it's a group story and that every aspect of someone's story and life had to connect to the greater story. We just realized that like every time we were hitting a character beat and this goes for Jim or any of the characters that it had to keep moving the greater narrative further and that if we were hitting a similar beat with two different characters that also didn't work. And so we had to leave a few things on the cutting room floor like that we loved and that we felt were like wonderful scenes. For example, Denise, her character's backstory, like her childhood and stuff. But what we realized was that it was sort of like a double beat with Judy's backstory because they were kind of similar. And so there were certain things that we had to let one person's experience speak for the greater experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that was just like a lot of calibration, trial and error, test screenings, and just trying lots and lots of different things. But I think that that moment when we realized it doesn't need to be more personal, it needs to be more universal. Universal. There you go. Thank you. That was revelatory. I love that story. That is exactly what I wanted. One thing I wanted to say about the music just quickly was that I think... I mean, we had all this like wonderful period music in the film. Mostly it was like Jim and Nicole brought this amazing soundtrack to the film. But in terms of the score, one thing that was complicated and difficult in terms of like working with the composer was that extremely layered and complicated emotion of the film itself and of all of the scenes. Like it's not just one feeling, it's a lot of feelings. That was 
one of our biggest challenges with the score. A lot of the temp music I was using were cues that had very complicated emotional landscapes in the same way that the film did. And so that was something we had to work with really closely on the score to make sure that we weren't falling into like any emotional tropes of disability films, Mm -hmm. like inspiration porn or (laughs) sad, difficult struggle. They're like these certain emotional tropes that a lot of disability films fall into. And we were like, really wanted to make it clear that this was not that type of um, because of the complexity of those emotional moments, what were you going to for, for temp score? That's a good question. I have like an extensive music library that I've built over time. Uh, basically, every project that I work on, I take all the music and just keep throwing it into the pot. And so I didn't have like one thing that I was going to. It was just fishing around for something that felt right. I used a lot of different things from a lot of different films. It wasn't until we did the score itself where it started to feel really cohesive because I was using a lot of different things. What I had to do is get that complicated emotional landscape that required pulling from a lot of different places. Uh, A lot of narrative or were you sticking with documentary or what were you? Um, I would say mostly film scores maybe half and half documentary and narrative. Uh, One of the things that I wanted to ask you about was kind of that run up to getting ready for Sundance, right? You've got a film, it's going to go to, it needs to get into Sundance first, but then you've got some time to work on it. Tell me about that whole getting it ready to be submitted and then getting it ready to be screened. Those have got to be two very different things. And how much time is in between those two? So in our case, we were really lucky. They informed us pretty early on that we had gotten in. We had a lot of time to work on it in between finding out because I think we submitted early um, and found out early. And so then we were working on it, knowing that it was going there, knowing it had to be great. Like, you know, it was just that uh, another level of like, okay, we really have to make it great. We really need the time to make it happen. But thankfully, like we, we had that time. The project expands to fill the time you have. (laughs) So (laughs) So true. Whole process at the very end, which I was part of a little bit, but mostly fell on our post producer and associate producers and directors that getting all the archival clearances and the music clearances and all of that. And I was able to go to some of the color correction and the sound mix and the music, the scoring sessions and stuff, but I wasn't there for all of it. And when was that happening? So that was all happening in November and December, but there was just a lot of work to be done. Um, And then also just another layer of work to make everything accessible, to make the, the audio track and the subtitled version or the closed caption version, all of that, make sure all of that at the, they have an audio description version. Oh yeah. And that's like a whole another layer of like a creative aspect because it's, it's like another experience of the film and, and you don't want people describing it wrong. And so it's, you know, I think that was like a whole other project onto itself. You have to really like be, using the right language for everything. And so I think they went through a number of rounds of notes on that aspect of the film as well. 
But what we didn't find out until later on in the process was that we were going to be the opening night film. And so that was like then this whole other layer of like excitement and nerves. Okay, not only are we going to Sundance, but we're also the opening night film and totally like mind blowing every step of the way. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Eileen Meyer. I'm Steve Holfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Holfish. Also, subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. Then be sure to spread the word and tell a filmmaking or film-loving friend.